WGIF. It's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Good morning to you in Seattle. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Manson Mitchell. We are joined by bad boy Benny Mathers, as we like to call him there at the board, keeping us on an even keel. How are you today, Benny? Good. The uh, fire hose is uh, running overtime right now, so to speak. I'll bet. I'll bet. (laughs) Is it smoky there in Seattle? Very much so. A lot of the stuff from Oregon's floating up. And then, of course, we've got stuff Mm. from the east side of the state moving over, still a little bit left over. And even from uh, the south end, actually, where my girlfriend lives. And there was uh, some earlier fires in the week that are still kind of smoldering. So, yeah, kind of, uh, yeah, you can't see very well. Let's just go with that. He had uh, Graham on the news showing that Graham was on fire. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. It was that that made uh, national, national news. Right, right. And yeah. for those of you who uh, have uh, been or have not been to Graham, Washington, if the smoke is so thick that you can't see Mount Rainier from Graham, you've got a fire going on. Yeah, totally. Big one. I have seen some really cool. I mean, unfortunately, some cool photos of people flying over areas that, of course, all of the, you know, um, Smoke is down, obviously, at a certain elevation. And then high above, though, you can see, like, the brightness and embers and the glow coming through the clouds at dusk, which are pretty impressive, to say the least, but unfortunately oh, for the wrong make reason. Some pre- yeah. yeah, very pretty pictures, and mm-hmm. you're right, for the wrong reasons. Right. Yes, exactly. That's accidental photographic opportunity there, photo ops, as they call them. Mm-hmm. Well, we're monitoring, of course, everybody in the nation is, and... Uh, Beyond thoughts and prayers, we're just intending that the best outcome will be. And particularly today, Suzanne, because this is another anniversary of 9-11. 19 years have passed, and I still remember with crystal clarity what I was doing. I think most everyone does if they were of the age to appreciate it. And Benny, do you remember what you were doing this morning 19 years ago? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, specifically, yes, I was uh, attending WSU, Washington State University, go Cougs, and I was uh, just about to get up. I, I, well, I was kind of rudely awoken by the neighbors, kind of college town. We'll go with that one. And uh, so I didn't really know what was going on. And then I got a call from my mom. She's like, you need to get up and, and turn on the news or, or, or find it. And so I did. I flipped it on and sure enough, it was all going down. And so then I literally just threw on my stuff and ran up to campus and most of the classrooms were already open and a lot of the rooms had the news feeds on. And I remember seeing just, it was just uh, just ridiculous on what I was watching and what everybody else were in awe. And a lot of people were, you know, coming in from the night before and just kind of making it through the next day. And, and a lot of the professors were showing up early and they looked like they just woke up and yeah, it was, it was a sight to behold and, and it will forever be uh, engraved in uh, our brains. Absolutely. As for myself, Mm -hmm. I lived where I worked. I was managing an apartment community Ah. in Tukwila, close by the airport. And I got up, made my coffee, and then didn't always turn on the TV. Mm -hmm. And my mother happened to be visiting at that time there. So I decided to make some coffee. Then Mm -hmm. I sat down at my computer to open it up and get my email. And Back then, the thing was Yahoo. <laughs> I got to get on Yahoo. Okay, what are the news headlines? Uh, the old search engines are <laughs> right. Netscape, Yahoo. Plane, yeah, plane right. crashes into yeah. World Trade Center. Bush suspects terrorism. And I said, oh, 
what? What are you talking about? Crashes into the World Trade Center. And then, of course, there was the second one there. And from that point on, I saw, I told my mother, who had come out to the living room, I said, I've got to find out what's going on here. This doesn't make any sense at all. And I turned on the Today Show, and that TV remained on until past midnight. Oh, yeah. And absorbing that shock and sitting there and watching it. I remember my mother, who at that time was approaching 80 years of age, said, what a way for me to go out of this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was incredible. It was pretty ridiculous, too. It just it, it was never ending. And you were like, will it stop? Can it stop? Should it? You know, I mean, like this is it, it was literally I mean, everyone at, on camp. I mean, more people stayed on campus that I've ever witnessed in the history of me, you know, my years of going to school and stuff like that. But no one left, really. And it was just so impressive. And everyone was trying to call people. Things were shutting down. You know, the small uh, airport in Pullman shut down just like that. Because they just obviously the FAA went through and you know literally they were they were like we don't want any more so um, and then of course more of the stories were unfolding too so Suzanne what about you? I also received an early morning phone call. I was sound asleep. My sister called me and said, "Get over here right away." I didn't know what for, mm-hmm. but I got in my car. She was only a, a mile from where I lived, and I I went over there and I spent the next four days there. She and I were glued to the television from Tuesday, well, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I think I went home Thursday night. So, yeah, we just we just watched it in, in disbelief for three days. We have a gentleman we are going to bring on who is a first responder. And as this day approached, Suzanne and I decided this is the perfect guest. That's returning the guy. Guest. Yeah, he's the author. You'll remember him from a few weeks ago. He's the author of Firefighter Zen, a field guide to thriving in tough times. Hirsch Wilson joins us. Let's give him his brief mad props. And then I'd like to find out where he was. Hirsch Wilson and his wife, Lori, became volunteer firefighters in 1986. He has worked as an organizational consultant, pilot, outdoor adventure trainer, professional dancer and author. He writes for Backdraft Magazine and other publications. He lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I will be sure to give out his website again, but just to give you a preview, it is HirschWilson.com. And welcome for the second time to Manson Mitchell Hirsch. Good to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And our first question has to be, do you remember what you were doing 19 years ago today? Uh, vividly, I, I, and like I bet millions of people, um, I walked down, um, made coffee, turned on the Today Show, and there was this picture of the first tower being hit and Matt Lauer on the Today Show going, uh, wasn't sure what was going on, and I sat down and watched, and then the second airplane hit the tower, uh, and we just sat there, I think, in stunned silence for about 45 minutes before anybody spoke, um, like the rest of the country, you could just feel that silence as we all kind of tried to figure out what was happening uh, and knew that at that, at that point that our worldview had changed. Um, and I spent the day, like everybody else, trying to get answers and then ended up going to our station, um, our fire station where uh, we kind of gathered for the rest of the day uh, trying to figure out if we were, uh, if this, if this was going to be a national event, if we were going to be deployed someplace. So that took over our lives. 
And that was after you had already been uh, a firefighter since 1986. So you were 15 years into being a volunteer firefighter, not not exactly a newbie. And so right. you, you, you got your gear together, you collected yourselves, and you tried to figure out what was going to be next, right? Right. And uh, a couple of our guys took their gear and took some axes and got in the car and drove to New York. And they spent two weeks on the pile. Um, oh, my God. With recovery. Yeah. Yeah. That is incredible. I need yeah, to ask that, you, Hirsch. That's a national story. Go ahead. National story. When you were watching this on the Today Show, as I did, being a first responder, being so experienced and understanding, sometimes in minute detail, what happens at these terrible scenes that you come upon because there needs to be that first response. Were you thinking as you looked at that and you're trying to take this in, was there any thought in your head that those mighty towers could actually collapse? I No, absolutely not. I mean, I, well, I thought, um, you know, because they, 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 it didn't happen instantaneously. Uh, and and so that was kind of tricky that the planes hit and the, the towers looked like they stood. Uh, and it wasn't until... Um, a couple minutes later or that they actually collapsed. So I thought at, at first that, okay, this is going to be, um, a, you know, a, an experience for people in the upper tower, but it's going to be, you know, they're going to be able to get up there. They're going to be able to get out. And then when that, that first tower collapsed, it was like, well, the second tower is going to go, you know, the second tower is going to go. And then we just, we sat around thinking about, um, and then the people jumping out of the building, which was horrific. Um, and then you just, you know, my mind went to the firefighters. What are they doing? Where are they? You know, what, what, uh, what's going through their heads and who's in command and, um, my God, be safe. You know, that's kind of where we went. And this is really a pivot point in our, our hour together, Hirsch. You do this stuff. No, you didn't go to the towers. You didn't go to New York. You knew men who did. But my mm -hmm. question for you at this point is, I mean, what what's going through your mind when you come into a situation that is beyond exigent? It's it's colossal in its scope, and there's not anybody around to whom you can turn and say, "Okay, this is yours. Go take care of it." There, it, it's when you're there, and those those first responders, the firemen, the police, they're right there. They have to respond. People coming in from the boroughs, there to respond to this. It would seem to me that you have to go to your training, and otherwise you're running on pure adrenaline. Yeah, and I want to say first that um, the firefighters and first responders in New York, they're my heroes. Um, they do things that I, on a regular basis, that, that uh, you know, I always wonder, could I live up to their standards? So I think that's the most important thought to get out there. Then I think about um, you know, kind of in our department, you know, we have firefighters with asthma and arthritis. We have firefighters struggling with anxiety and claustrophobia. Some have anger issues. Uh, we have one firefighter with PTSD from Iraq, and some struggle financially and have troubled relationships. Um, and the 343 firefighters from New York are just like us, right? They're not Odysseus. They're not Achilles. Um, all of them. Are, are fallible human beings. We're fallible human beings joined by a common cause. 
and they all suffered from the same afflictions that, that are part and parcel of the human condition. But when you think about it, that morning, life asked them the most terrifying question, are you brave, right? Can you do this? And 340 firefighters, people just like you and me, but they're trained to be brave, right? Trained to do the job. They said yes, and they went up those stairs. And it's just astonishing to me, to this day, um, what that must have been like. And it's, I think it's one of those things, you could not have done it alone, but when you're surrounded by your team, uh, by your station, you, you go together, come what may. And I, I just, um, to this day, it is just a remarkable act of bravery um, that it's hard to comprehend. In the moment, I wonder if people have a foreshadowing of their destiny, you know, because you being a first responder, everyone I've ever talked to, police, fire, paramedic, there, there's a point where in order not to shut down, you have to flip a switch in your head and you might have a better way of expressing it, Hirsch. But there, there has to be a turning off of emotions relative to the task at hand for you to even begin to respond in a way that matches your ideals of professionalism. Actually, that's exactly the language we use. You know, we turn the switch on, the switch goes on. And you stop being a civilian, you stop being anything but a firefighter, and you focus on the task. Um, and all you, all, you have your training, you have um, the other firefighters, and it's a tremendously focused time. The past goes away, the future goes away, and you are just in that moment. Uh, and I think, you know, the the adrenaline plays a, a large part, but just that um, the the I guess the the pull of the job that needs to get done, uh, that lives need to be saved, is a pretty is it's pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful and it drives you forward. And if you don't mind my mentioning, I think it's a wonderful thing for you to have memorialized those who were lost on 9-11, the, the first responders. You did it in a physical way. And when you told me about that on the phone, preparatory to your second visit here, I was very impressed by that. I, I thought brotherhood, that's a bond of brotherhood. Right. I have a, I have a tattoo that's just 343 which is the number of firefighters that were lost on 9-11. And I did that because I never want to forget. And I think it's, um, it's unique to the firefighter world. Um, but, you know, there are heroes. And those are there, you know, without losing the fact of that it's a tragedy and it was a horrible thing to happen to them. Uh, and I, I just think about what it must have been like to be going up those stairwells when the towers were collapsing. But, but given all that, there are heroes, right? And they're the, they're the people, they're the individuals we want to live up to, right, and um, emulate. Hirsch, I know when you were on our show last, about a month ago or so, you talked about uh, how many career firefighters there are and how many volunteer firefighters there are and so I'd like you to, to mention that once more along with the total. Sure. So there are about 1.3 million firefighters in the country. Um, 70% of those are volunteers. 
And the way it breaks out is uh, large urban areas have career firefighters, and some of the medium-sized cities have career firefighters. But the rest of the country has uh, volunteers. Uh, and sometimes it's a volunteer and combi- combined with a career department, but volunteers are in every state. Um, the first volunteer fire department was started in 1736 by Benjamin Franklin. So we have a, a long culture, long uh, history and culture going back to the 1730s. That leads me to ask you, Hirsch, being a volunteer firefighter, a volunteer first responder, and they're in New Mexico, uh, in Santa Fe region. What do you do for funding? What is it that you can count on for resources? Because the need never really seems to go away, and you never know which day you're going to be needed to do what. Sure. Um, we're funded by uh, partially by um, a state, um, a, a real estate tax, uh, a property tax, and then we do fundraisers. And I, I think... Um, Almost every volunteer fire department in the country does some sort of fundraiser. It's expensive. It's uh, $15,000 to outfit a firefighter, and some of our trucks, uh, our engines run up uh, over half a million dollars. So it's, it's an expensive business. And you can't call it an expensive hobby. Your life's on the line at times. You know, other people's lives are on the line waiting for you to get there. So this expense, I imagine you have to justify the expenditure of every dollar there, uh, people who to whom you report. But you're out there taking generous contributions, taxpayer money, and you're you're employing it in order to save lives. I mean, right. that's that is right up on that existential edge of what it means to be a citizen. Yeah, I think so. And I think the, the, the thing about being a volunteer is it, it started out by saying you're living in a community and there's, if we don't do it, no one's going to do it because there's no fire department. So you organize it on that way. and You organize in the community uh, to take care of each other, uh, to make sure that um, when, when something happens, when there's a fire, there are people who are going to take care of you. And that's kind of the tradition. That's how that's kind of the theme of fire of local, regional, and I mean local volunteer fire departments. That if if, uh, if we don't do it, no one else will. Um, and I think that's how this country evolved. It would, you know, the, there's this myth of the Lone Ranger and the individual. But if you look at it, if you step back to ten thousand feet, everything that we've done that's great has been done by communities, by people coming together by working together. And the volunteer fire department is emblematic of that, uh, of, of people coming together to volunteer to take care of their communities. Gary and I have had the conversation before that, you know, America sort of thrives on this myth, the mythology of the independent person. But in truth, nobody can really live, you know, on an island by themselves if you're living here in America, you're counting on a lot of people to do what it is that they do so that you can survive. And so, you know, even if you're a, you know, a small business owner, um, you know, you're still counting on an awful lot of services that go on 24 hours a day, even though, you know, they, not everybody owns your business. If, if you're not a corporation, if you're just, you know, a, a single person outfit, 
you still are dependent upon a lot of people who each have their their job in the whole big picture of what living is all about here. So I feel less and less like, you know, the independent person is really the thing that we should be striving for, the lone cowboy out on the range. It does seem like we ought to be paying a little bit more attention to how to help one another. Absolutely. Totally agree. There was a story in the news several years ago, and I still can't believe it. Now, here you are. You know your firefighter, Zen. I want to say this happened in Tennessee, and if somebody can correct me, I think I have it right, but if I'm wrong, let me know. There, I believe it was in Tennessee where there was a case of somebody that did not pay a reasonable fee, it seemed to me, for the local fire coverage. They were late on their payment there, and their house caught fire. Of course, isn't that the way? I have a rich sense of irony. And the firefighters stood there because they hadn't paid. They were not allowed to respond. The person hadn't paid yet. And there in Tennessee, in the evening, flames lighting up the sky, they stood there with their equipment ready. They were in their uniforms, and they watched the house burn to the ground. Mm. Now, I'm, I'm thinking if that's in my DNA to be a first responder, I just don't think I could do that, or if that was the the rule in my community and I'm prohibited from doing what every instinct tells me to do, I'm not sure I could stay on the job, but that's just me. No, I agree. I, I don't think that would be, that would not pass muster in our department. Um, we, we would, we would put the fire out. We just, it's, it's just instinctual. It's what we do. Um, we, you know, we'll figure out the money part later. We never worry about that. Um, but we're going to put the fire out. At some point, Hirsch, and, and we're, I know we're going to talk about this much more in the second half of the show, but at some point when you were a firefighter, and it couldn't have been the first or second day, but you started noticing the effect, uh, the negative effects of being a firefighter, how hard it is emotionally, what it is that the fire department and the chief does for people who may encounter their first death or um, dismemberment in a car accident or, or something else which is very traumatizing. And, um, and then at some point, you were really taking some notes there about the uh, PTSD aspect of it. About when did that come about and how did that come about? Sure, I think it was about, about four years in. And when we started, both Lori and I, the fire department was this great stress reducer. Uh, we would be at work, and uh, we worked. We both worked for a startup company, and so we were always worried about money and salaries and going to meetings. And then the pager would go off, and we'd get to go be with all these great people in the fire department and go serve somebody, go help somebody. And that was kind of the first phase. And then I ran into my first really significantly bad call um, that was – really traumatic call involving a family and that just changed my outlook and all of a sudden um i i just felt terrible i was depressed uh i was anxious i was having nightmares i was continually recursively going over the call and our, our chief uh, dan bolson at the time saw that and his first instinct which is the honda way was to take me out to lunch <laughs> and um 
sit me down and kind of walk me through the idea that we're you're kind of done playing firefighter, uh, and now it's time to be serious about this business and understand there's an emotional impact, and you have to take care of yourself in order to stay in the vocation. And we talked about things uh, that that when someone's and this is kind of firefighter language, but when someone's going to die, they're going to die, uh, and there's not much we can do. Um, we we don't have all the tools that doctors and surgeons have when we're way out at 60 miles from the hospital. So we do our best, but even our best sometimes is not enough and people pass away. And you just have to kind of accept that, uh, accept that that's the way of the universe. Um, understand that you're, you're one of the helpers, you're one of the angels, if you will, going to help people. And you have to really focus on that as your purpose in life um, and, and realize that you're not always going to be successful. But it was really a, um, a, a change of how I thought about being on the fire department. And it's, you know, I think we all still struggle with bad calls, but to have that perspective really, really makes a difference. And in that change of perspective that you got about four years into it, at some point you started looking at how to help other firefighters with their um not just the tough calls, but when it goes beyond that, when it goes into PTSD. And and so how did, did that come about over a long period of time or a short period of time? It's, it, I think what happens is, and it is like becoming an adult, all of a sudden you're the grown-up. <laughs> and, and fire department, all of a sudden I was, after seven years, I was one of the senior members on the department, and people started looking up to me, and they started asking me questions. Uh, that I initially I didn't have answers to, um, and so I had to do a lot of study, I had to do a lot of research to kind of understand um, the emotional impact um, that firefighting had uh, and that tragedy and trauma had, and and to kind of be able to help. So um, I did a lot, I did a lot of work in um, in stress and PTSD uh, and acute stress disorder. So that I could help because when someone, a firefighter, a young fighter comes up, firefighter comes up and says, I can't handle this, right? I can't go through this. Um, I'm going to quit. And which is fine. Sometimes you're not, people aren't, aren't cut out for the work, but even if they quit, you need to, you need to stay close to them because it can be a traumatizing experience. So I wanted to, to learn as much as I could about that area and, and that kind of stuff so that I could help, so I could be there for people. Because I think I have a, a friend, um, uh, Faith Applewhite is her name. She's the medical captain of the Santa Fe City Fire Department. And um, as like a good, really level-headed firefighter, she gets she goes to a consular once a week, uh, once a month, and uh, just to keep, her, keep everything kind of up and up. And, and she started to describe to her consular uh, call they had been on, and the consular just burst into tears because it was it was such a traumatic call. And so what we've learned from that is the people that that you need to talk to are your peers, um, and and they're the only, they're the ones who have been there. They're the ones who really understand. And this is this is true both in the fire department, the police, and the military. That we seek out the best place to seek out help is from your peers because they they understand. And they can kind of listen, and they've been there. 
so that's kind of um, where my thinking has evolved in terms of helping people. Our guest this hour on this 19th anniversary of 9-11 is Hirsch Wilson. He is a first responder. He is also the author of Firefighter Zen, a field guide to thriving in tough times. More to be said about this book on the other side of our one and only break this hour. And more of what it is, it seems like every time the phone rings, it, I don't know about you, but I can feel like I'm in an existential crisis when that phone rings, especially late at night. Hirsch Wilson has dealt with all of that, and he has many important things to say about the humanness of it all. We'll be back with more Hirsch Wilson, more Manson Mitchell right after this. Thank you for tuning in to AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. No matter who we are or where we come from, we all experience difficulties in life. Military veterans know that sometimes it takes strength and determination to make it through. Whether it's obvious physical challenges or struggles on the inside, it takes strength to ask for help when you need it. I knew that I had to get support, not just for me, but for the sake of my wife and kids. Talking about it has helped me feel more like myself again. Honestly, it was hard to open up at first, but it's changed my life for the better. Learn how veterans like us have reached out for help and hear stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back Hirsch Wilson, the Zen firefighter, with his perspective about 9-11 and ways to combat PTSD during stressful times. On Saturday, Mickey Jacobs, psychic medium, returns with a wealth of experience, insights, and compassion to share. And yes, she will be taking your calls. Bringing you mastery and mystery one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. 
Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Hirsch Wilson. Hirsch, if people would like to connect with you, get your book, tell us about your website and any other social media or any other way people can connect with you. Sure. So uh, my book, uh, Firefighters Gen, um, a guide, a field guide to thriving in tough times, is available at any bookstore. You can order it. And please support local bookstores. They really need help right now. And uh, or Amazon.com. Um, if you want to get in contact with me personally, my email is Hirsch, H-E-R-S-C-H dot Wilson at Mac, M-A-C dot com. And uh, my website is HirschWilson dot com. Thank you. Hirsch, you wrote a wonderful book. Firefighter Zen, A Field Guide to Thriving in Tough Times. Well, thank you for writing this book. I'm so glad that we have a copy, and we enjoyed it, absolutely, on the intellectual as well as emotional level. Here's the thing. This book, and I recommend it to anyone, Firefighter Zen is an important book to read. It's certainly a philosophical book. I regard it as a spiritual book as well. It's a book for people who want to embrace the best side of themselves, who believe in their own capacity for acting in in terms of mental health, responding to the moment, responding to life generally. It is not by any stretch a frolicsome book because there are (laughs) stories in here that are difficult to read and the lessons to be absorbed are important, but they're not easy. This isn't ABC 123 at all. And that leads me to ask you, Hirsch, in terms of applying firefighter zen, the zen of it all, being a first responder, were there certain people or even one person who was functioning, as far as you could tell, pretty much like a machine? Someone who was rational, empirical, in control, buttoned down, hat on straight, ready to go, squared away, as they say in the Marines, somebody who could behave that way for long periods of time only to find that they were human after all? Was there something that caused one of your colleagues to snap, as they say, or to betray a level of emotion that you didn't even know was there? Absolutely. Uh, and I have two stories of, uh, of firefighters who were my mentors and people I really respected uh, there, you know, one was just this great firefighter. He was the most technical, aggressive firefighter I knew. Um, and after 10 years of working together and going on medical calls and fires, he just turned to me one day after a cardiac arrest and said, I can't deal with death anymore. I just can't, I can't be around it. Uh, and he didn't quit, but he stopped going to medical calls. And this is one of those guys who was just, just so buttoned up that you thought nothing got to him. But, but after 10 years, uh, it just, it was too many deaths, too many deaths, and he just couldn't handle it anymore. And what I learned from that was um, not only in the fire service, but in our culture, we're taught, especially men, are taught to suck it up, don't talk about it, don't show emotion. And, and if I could get a message out to everybody, that doesn't work. <laughs> you, can't, you can't suppress stuff. It, it, it'll come out sideways or it'll come out eventually. Um, and we know on the fire service, the International Association of uh, Firefighters did a study that said uh, in, in any given month, 50% of firefighters report uh, binge drinking, 
serious binge drinking. So we know that firefighters are doing everything they can when they're to deal with stress and deal with um, with bad calls. Uh, they're you know often with with uh, drinks, with alcohol, or with uh, medication. So we know that stress is out there. The other story is um, we had a horrific car crash involving uh, a number of kids. Uh, it was a bad call. Uh, we worked the call, did what we could, and uh, life went on. And some of us, you know, were pretty traumatized and dealt with it early on. Um, but five or six years later, I was standing with this other firefighter who was my age, longtime firefighter, and we were just standing in the bay of our station, and there were kind of fluorescent lights, and it was dark outside. And he just turned to me and said, uh, and this is six or seven years later, he said, I just thought they were asleep. They all looked so peaceful. Um, how could they be dead? And this was years and years and years afterwards. And again, it's just that the, the trauma stays, can stay with you. Um, it can come at you in, at weird times, middle of the night or you know, years later. Uh, and we need to be better both as a firefighter culture and as, you know, what we're going through right now with the pandemic and the recession, we need to be better at dealing with that kind of trauma and that kind of stress. Because you got, you know, it's, it's like pay me now or pay me later. And, and to that end, the trauma stays with you is in part something that you launch your um, coaching of people who have PTSD and do that for firefighters. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So um, I, I, I adapted um, a paper by this brilliant woman, uh, Margaret Hagland, and uh, her associate, Nicole Cooper. And they um, are, wrote a paper uh, about the six keys to resilience to help uh, prevent or mitigate PTSD. So I, I use their practices in, in what I do in coaching and writing about PTSD and stress. And so I can just run through the practices. They're, 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 they're kind of things your mom told you when you were young. So they're very Sounds great. And the first yeah. one is, is um, as firefighters, and, but as, as people going through stress right now, we need to understand stress. We need to understand how stress uh, affects the body and how stress affects you. Simple things. Um, I think um, a lot of people just feel bad. They feel anxious. They feel sweaty. They, you know, they have pain in their chest. They have stomach pains. So and they don't really identify it. They don't label it. So naming it is the most important, one of the most important things we can do, understanding stress. I think this next, the second practice is to have a strategy for coping with stress. Right, uh, and especially now in these stressful times, we all need a, a practice and a strategy. So when we feel stress building in us, we have something that we can do. And it, can, you know, uh, there are yoga practices, there are there's meditation. Uh, my what I do every morning, and I have for a number of years, is I walk every morning. I go out with my dogs, and we walk. And what I've learned, I mean, dogs are, have been a great teacher for me because they're so in the moment, right? We go on the same walk, it's the same loop that we've done for years, but they're excited every morning, right, to go out and new smells and new things to see. And they're so in the moment. And what, 
what they teach me is to be in the moment, to let go of uh, all the stuff that happened in the past, not worry about the future, um, but just to be in the moment. And that, that's my time to kind of prioritize my thinking, go through what's under my control and what's not under my control, kind of let go of the stuff that's not under my control and, and get on with my day. Um, the next practice Again, commonsensical, and my mom told me to get out of the house and go, you know, go for a run uh, when I was when I was was angry or irritable. And and the next practice is to have a regular exercise routine. You, we need we're physical beings, we're physical beings first, and we need to move. We're born to move, and it doesn't mean going to the gym, it, you know, and, and lifting weights. It can mean just that walk. It can mean a thirty-minute exercise routine, but being physical. It's a really important part of um, being able to manage your stress, and, and there's so much research on that. And you can go on the go online and, and kind of look at the research. But how that how physical activity affects us emotionally is well documented. The next practice is being optimistic. Uh, we talk in the fire service uh, about being realistically optimistic, and I think that is an absolutely important perspective now. The pandemic is going to go on. Um, it's going to be, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, it's going to be a tough time for the economy to recover. But we will get through this, right? We will get through this. Um, I think I talked about before, both my grandparents were born in 1900, and they went through the First World War, the flu epidemic, um, the Depression, the Second World War, uh, the Red Scare, the polio scare, which was frightening, um, all the way up through the Vietnam War. And they maintained a sense of optimism uh, and perspective. And we have to have that same perspective now. We're going to get through this. It's going to be tough. We're going to get through this. And the other part of that is having a sense of humor. Um, firefighters are known for their dark sense of humor. But it's, it's that sense of humor that really bonds us, that helps us keep our perspective, and really kind of lightens the mood when things are really bad. Um, the fifth practice is what we call a moral compass. And whether this is religious or spiritual or secular, you, you need to have a moral compass. And that, by that we mean um, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, why you're here, right? Uh, we're not here to wander aimlessly without meaning. Uh, we are here to discover our meaning and our purpose for living. And that makes a significant difference in our ability to manage through difficult times. Uh, the next practice is, is, and this goes back to our, our earlier conversation, is we're not lone rangers. You know, we evolved from hunter-gatherer tribes where we depended on each other. And, and to go off alone in, after, you know, from, from being in a hunter-gatherer tribe meant certain death, right? You're not going to make it alone. So we evolved and, and uh, we are designed to be in groups, to be together. And uh, it's like we mentioned before, everything we've done that's been great in this country has come about by us working together. And the final practice is what we call cognitive flexibility. And that is, that is the ability to see an event or see something that happens from multiple different perspectives, to get, not get locked in on one thing. So our example in the fire service is um, I can either see a, something that happens as a significant tragedy that, that is ruining my life uh, because it's so painful, 
Um, or I can say to myself, uh, I am running towards tragedy. I'm running towards helping people while everybody else is running away. That is my purpose. So that's just a nuance. That's a different way of looking at things um, that is really important. So you don't get locked into one way of thinking. So our, our ability to be flexible in our thinking, see things from different perspectives, is a really important part of, of mitigating stress and hopefully preventing the worst symptoms of PTSD. So those are the kind of seven practices that I use and teach and write about. You have brought up a, an episode from my young life. I don't know why this bubbled up, but here it is. I remember being a kid, it's when you said polio scare, a well-founded fear. When I was a kid, I remember my mom telling me that on Saturday, I was going to go down, probably with the neighbor kids, and we were going to get our, she didn't say vaccination, but, but get our treatment so we won't get polio. You know, you know, you're a kid and you understand that polio is something that you didn't want to get. It was on the news. Right. People talked about it. Iron lung and all, for God's sake. And so I had a lot of trepidation. So on Saturday, I was driven down to the high school in the parking lot, the high school where my dad taught, actually, there. And I stood in line. And much to my joyous relief, I was given a sugar cube. And there was a pink purplish dot on top of it, into which they injected this vaccine. And instead yeah. of sticking me with a needle, and I was worried all the way down the hill about that, I got the sugar cube like a horse. I'm happy about that. Yeah. And I'm going, yeah. man, this isn't so bad. I wish all vaccinations were like this. And that speaks to this idea of optimism and associating something good with what you were doing. If you have the right mindset, even if it isn't as surprisingly or serendipitously pleasant like that, there is something about what you are doing that can bring you a level of satisfaction or meaning in life. Absolutely. And to me, a lot of it uh, goes to perspective, right? A lot of it goes to keeping a, 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 a large perspective on who we are uh, as human beings, what we've gone through. And once you, once you grasp that, the the kind of pain or and anxiety you feel today isn't as large because, you know, I look at um, my personal ancestors, but you can look at all of our ancestors and what they've gone through. And you can say, you know, I'm the same as they, uh, I'm, um, I have their genes, I have their stories and, and they went through an amazing amount. I can too. And that helps me not only keep my perspective, but to hold on to optimism and also humor. Oh, having a sense of humor is indispensable. And I yep. think that it's a great safety valve because it, when, I, when I think about this, it reminds me of this Freudian notion that our bodies carry around an emotional pressure cooker. And mm -hmm. you said, you know, it's going to come out in weird ways, this pressure, if you don't deal with it. That is so true. If, if you are not acknowledging your anger or your grief, then it's like, what Woody Allen said in one of his movies, he said, in my family, we don't get angry. We grow tumors. <laughs> it's going yeah. to come out somewhere. It's going to come out. And, in, 
Absolutely. And, and not in a good way, not in a healthy no. way, rather no. than taking this direct approach to dealing with your emotional life. Apparently, and I don't know the ins and outs of it there, but apparently we have, of course, the physical body that we know about, and we have a mental sphere with whatever gift of intelligence we have been bestowed. But there also is this emotional body, and it's extremely important that we get to know that body within the body in order to be more functional and ultimately more happy, more joyous in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think and I, I, do, I never want to lose sight that the goal is to have a joyous life. Um, and, and how you get there is a little more complicated, I think, uh, than we've been taught. I mean, we've been taught that the path to joy is through material goods, having a big house, having a brand new car, having our kids go to great schools, all those kinds of things. And that's an illusion because the path to joy is really through uh, moving from, from always focusing on myself to focusing on others. When you're in service to others, that's where how you find joy. Um, and I think that's what what firefighters discover is those moments when you're serving, helping somebody, saving a life, um, or doing small things like shoveling a driveway for someone who's in their 80s. That brings joy. That brings meaning to your life, and that's kind of what the goal is. I'm letting that just sink in, you know, what the goal is. You know, it, it's so obvious with your first responders, um, firefighters, policemen, um, ambulance, EMT, that... Um, that they are in service. And I'm glad to see that there a lot has been made of that during COVID-19, where people are cheering the medical community yep. at seven o'clock you know, in New York and, yep. and the things that have gone on. But you know what it is that you're talking about is everybody being in service. And a, another place that that's kind of shown up has been at the grocery stores. People who are checking out groceries are getting thanked for doing so. People who yep. are filling the shelves are getting thanked for doing so. Yep. So now we're, we're making the net a little bit wider with who we consider essential workers and, you know, who that we are, who is in service. But, you know, in matter of fact, we are all in service in some way if we choose to think of our lives that way. And that's one of the things that I got from reading your book, Firefighter Zen, is that you can look at your life as a life where you're just out to take, 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 or you can look at your life as being in service to life. Exactly. And I think about it, and, and again, one of the illusions we live under uh, is the idea of the individual and it's about me. And unfortunately, right now, we're going through a pretty traumatic time with uh, with uh, part of our politics being the me versus being in service. It's all about individuals versus it's about being in service. Um, and what we have to realize, you have to step back and realize is that, is that we are a web, right? We're all connected. Uh, and and it, the, the, what you mentioned was what the pandemic has brought out is this kind of paradox where on one hand we're isolated because we have to, uh, we have to quarantine. But on the other hand, we're realizing kind of the web of service around us of people that are doing things that are important to us that we need, 
And I think that has brought up a whole new kind of uh, way of seeing uh, our communities that, uh, that it has, it's brought people out uh, from behind the shadows and saying, my God, there's this interconnectedness that I never really realized. Uh, and I think we're much more appreciative of that now. Hopefully that we can hang on to that. You know what? Hopefully we can hang on to it, Hirsch, because, you know, you, you said it was it was like a, a web. I've called it a matrix. I've called it a web. I've called it netting. But, you know, whatever it is, we are all connected, you know, and when there is a hole in that, we all feel it. But when we're all pulling together, I can only hope that it continues and we we get out of this uh, me, me, me culture into something that is a little bit more about us. And, you know, I, I'd like to see that aspect continue even after COVID-19 is over. Trading in me for we, that's the thing, Hirsch. I went yep. to college in the uh, early and mid-1970s in California, and there were, there were things to enjoy and a lot that I resented. And one of the things that used to get under my skin was following behind a guy with a bumper sticker. Usually he had a Mercedes. And who the hell puts a bumper sticker on a Mercedes, especially a later, uh, a newer model? There, <laughs> that was nuts to begin with. There, but the bumper sticker said, I got mine. Or they have the fancy right. car. I got mine. Well, right. there are other people who don't know where the next meal is coming from. Now, is it a matter of being helpful, of having some degree of social interest, or do you simply blame the hungry guy? Well, then he should go out and get a job. Well, what if he does have a job? And he's also got a mortgage payment and a car payment so he can get to work, and he's got kids he's trying to put through school, and all of this. It's, it's the sense of community, and I hope that doesn't go by the boards. And sometimes I do worry. It's a question of what hangs in the balance. Do you have that critical mass to, to bring together a community for the sake of a shared goal, a well-defined one. I think I think that is you you, I, you perfectly illustrated. I think the core uh, debate, discussion, argument that we're having in our country now, uh, and and it goes to who we are as a people. And it, absolutely, to me, to me, it's astonishing and appalling that we have kids going hungry in this country. Who are we, right? Who are we? That is the fundamental question, Hirsch. I'm, I'm sorry we have to go, but I want to get it out there one more time. Your wonderful book is Firefighter Zen, A Field Guide to Thriving in Tough Times. Hirsch Wilson, thank you so much, sir, for joining us. We'll do it again. Always. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great weekend. Stay tuned for the Christine Upshirt Show, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience and American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mann. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.